0: The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au
1: uh, Well, <clears throat> good morning. Uh, my name is Jimmy. If we haven't yet met, it's, there we go, it's working. Alright, good stuff. Um, if you want to open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4, that's where we are this morning. Uh, and like Andrew said earlier, there are Bibles down the back if you want to be able to go and grab them. Um, this is our second last week through the journey of 2 Timothy We've been in a series for the last uh, this is the week number seven we've been in a series <clears throat> looking at uh, this book this letter written by Paul to Timothy and what we have here really is uh, what we have here really is kind of the, the very end of the of the teaching from Paul it's the very end of the content and so what we have here is really the end of the content so what we have next week there's a bit of um, there a bit more details that Paul is going to flesh out. We're going to get a bit of, an, of a look into uh, more of Paul's situation, more of Paul's uh, some of the logistical and the, the necessities there for Paul. But really what we have here, as far as it goes with uh, the, the end of Paul's teaching to Timothy about what he needs to do in this particular church, in this particular scenario, what we have today is really where it is wrapped up. And what we're going to do this morning is, is look at these eight verses and see what Paul has to say to Timothy. And we can, we can separate these things, separate these, this, uh, or break down this passage into two clear sections. Firstly, it, we could call it one final charge for Timothy. And the second part we could call one final hurrah for Paul. So there's one final charge for Timothy and then one final hurrah for Paul. And my hope is that as we read these last eight verses and study these, uh, these last eight verses of the bulk of Paul's teaching, my hope is that we would look upon Paul and Timothy and find ourselves uh, treasuring these men of faith, treasuring Pastor Timothy, treasuring the Apostle Paul, these men of faith who we can call our brothers. And that's a wonderful privilege that we have, to call the Apostle Paul, to call this guy Timothy, whom we've never met these guys, but we can call these guys brothers. So in verse 2, and we're going to look first of all at this charge to Timothy. In verse 2, Paul charges Timothy with this very, very clear instruction to preach the word. Now that's a really, really important sentence in this whole paragraph. Preach the word. In fact, it might even be one of the most important phrases, one of the most important imperatives of this entire letter. And we're going to get to that in just a second because in verse 1, Paul loads up this charge, this, this command of his. Paul loads this up with weight and gravity. He says to Timothy, I charge you. Now, now, the way that he has written this, it's a very solemn charge. It's a very somber uh, imperative. It's almost as if like, like Timothy and Paul have been driving along in the car and Paul's at the steering wheel telling Timothy, hey, this is how you should be being a minister, this is how you should be doing this. And when it comes to this point, though, Paul pulls the car over, puts the car in, the handbrake, puts, turns, turns the engine off and looks, looks at Timothy in the eyes and says, I charge you. That's the moment that we're experiencing here. Timothy, I charge you. Now, if that's all that Paul said, and if, he, if he just said, I charge you, preach the word, that would be weighty enough. But then Paul adds more weight onto this charge. He adds more weight into what he's saying here. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. And and that sentence there elevates this charge into the category of some of the loftiest, some of the highest authority that Paul could ever claim. I charge you in the presence of God. It's almost like he's saying, yes, Timothy, we are in God's presence. Timothy, I'm in, in a prison right now, and you're in Ephesus. And you are reading this at a time that was different to when I wrote it, obviously. But we are in God's presence. We are always in God's presence. God is watching us. And not only that, but Jesus Christ, he will return. And when he returns, he will bring forth his kingdom. And on that day, when he returns, he's going to return as the judge, to judge the living and the dead. And so with all of that in mind, Timothy, I charge you this. It's a heavy charge. There's a lot of weight here. It's a reminder to Timothy that his role as a pastor of this church, it's not like any other job. He is to shepherd God's people. He is to feed God's people with God's word. And if he is the one who will teach God's word to God's people, he must remember that he will be held to an account of the way that he goes about doing that. The food of God's word is, is more important than anything else that you and I could ever be feeding on. And so those who are called to stand before God's people and preach God's word in the presence of God, and the presence of Jesus Christ, they will be held to a higher account. The Apostle James says this in his letter. He says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Also, in the writer of Hebrews says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. This is the weight that Timothy should feel as he preaches. This is the weight that Timothy should feel as, as, as he prepares God's word, as he prepares to feed his, God's people with this word. If God's words are the words of eternal life and it is a pastor's job to preach God's word, then he should feel that weight of, of the task before him. He should feel that weight whenever he sits down to prepare God's word. He should feel that weight every time he stands up before God's people to preach. There's no such thing as a sermon that didn't matter. But this weight, that's not there to crush Timothy. That's not there to sink Timothy. This this weight is there to launch Timothy. Timothy. This, this weight is the lever upon, upon which uh, Timothy's mind should shift and be guaranteed of the fruit of, of his labor. God's word does not return to him void, and so as Timothy prepares to preach God's word, he should know that God's word comes with, a way, with such a way that his, way, his, uh, his word will actually not return to him void. This weight is the ballast to keep Timothy steady to keep him pure, to keep him honest, to keep, to keep him driven, to keep him with the right priorities in mind. And importantly for us, as we read this, is that we need to have a high view of God. If we have a small view of God, then a charge like this to preach the word, it'll mean nothing to us. In, in fact, we'll probably think it was a little bit much, like, Paul, you've kind of gone a little bit overboard here but if we actually have a high and lofty view of who God is, then we'll, we'll see. The, the charge that Paul has given to Timothy here is huge. It's weighty. It's big. It's the kind of thing that should arrest Timothy's attention, and it's the kind of thing that should arrest our attention as well. We should marvel that such a great mass could be contained in just a few simple words. That's the weight behind this command. And so, with that incredible way behind this command, Paul gives Timothy the substance of the charge preach the word. Preach the word. That's what Paul is saying here. Preach the word. He's been building up to this point throughout the entire letter. And now he arrives here. Preach the word. That <clears throat> phrase there, preach the word, means to herald the truth. Think of a town crier who would say, hear ye, hear ye, and would come with news to tell the people. It's not so much a lesson, it's not so much a lecture, it's news. And that is why there is this way behind it, because Timothy is charged to herald the good news, to tell God's people the news of the gospel, the news of Jesus Christ. As Timothy discharges his ministerial duties as a pastor, he must first and foremost tell the good news of Jesus Christ. Not just in what he teaches, but in the way that he lives his life, in his behaviour, in his conduct, in his, in, his, in his words, in his language. This is why we call ourselves here at LCC a gospel-centred church. We, we want to have the gospel central to absolutely everything that we do. And you might think that that kind of goes without saying, like, of course, gospel-centred, that's what churches should be. But we know how easy it is to let that slip. We know how easy it is to let the gospel slip from the center of, the, of, of our beings and, and to fall into a pattern of going, I need to perform for God. God will only love me if I perform. God will only love me if I'm being good. It, it, is a, it is a slippery slope away from the gospel. And it's so easy to fall that way. And this is why we over and over again bring the gospel to bear on our Sunday meetings and everything that we do, reminding ourselves of the grace of Jesus Christ. Reminding ourselves of this message which saves. The message which saves sinners like you and I. The message that we believe, and upon believing it, we become the saved people of God. The message that that God is holy and mighty and huge and monstrous and and gigantic and, and just infinite in majesty. And he's beautiful and loving and he's infinitely perfect in every single way. He is the epitome of all things that are good. He is the epitome of all things that are lovely. He gives meaning to the word good. He gives meaning to the word lovely. Lovely and good and and wonderful and pure and perfect don't have any kind of meaning except from God. And that God created us in his image. He created us in his image to, to be to to bring glory to him, to be like little mirrors who reflect God's glory to the rest of creation, to rule over creation and to be in relationship with God in such a way that we can see him and have him and and, and just um be in, in wonderful communion with God always. That's what we were created for. But then we ruined it with our sin. Sin came in, and, and instead of ruling over creation, we took that further, and we wanted to rule over God. We wanted to supplant God's place. We wanted to be the center of the universe. And so we, we rebelled, and, and we despised the Holy One. We despised the, the ancient, perfect, holy God, because we wanted to be there ourselves. And even though we rejected him and despised Him, though, yet... God being infinite in his love towards us. Still sought out a relationship with us and so he established a people who could again reflect the beautiful wonder of who God is. They could worship God in truth. They could worship God in holiness. They could worship the one true God. And yet his people messed it up again. But it's okay because God was building it to a point where at an appointed time in history he himself would enter into creation in the person of Jesus Christ. God sent Jesus. And he demonstrated, Jesus demonstrated the perfect life, the perfect relationship with God, complete and utter reliance and communion with God the Father. And yet his people rejected him and hung him on a cross to die. But his death was actually part of his plan for mankind that in dying he would absorb the wrath of god against the sins of mankind and against, upon his own body and even though he died he was resurrected springing back to life and instead of death having the final say jesus killed death and made it possible for everybody who trusts in him to actually be able to say that it is true of themselves and then God, and then Jesus ascended into heaven and sent the Holy Spirit to come and be with us and point us back towards Jesus. Point, point our eyes towards Jesus all the time and, and cause us to, and be, to be convinced of the truth and the beauty of God. And then and for those who, who trust in him, they will be given new life. They will be given eternal life. And at the end of their life, there's going to come a particular day where Jesus will return. And Paul's going to tell us in just a few moments that for those who trust in him, they will be crowned with a crown of righteousness. And even, so even though we stripped the crown off Jesus' head by our sin, he's going to place a crown of righteousness on our heads by his love for us. And he's going to put that crown on our heads. And we're going to be restored to full relationship with God once again. We're going to see him in the, in the face. We're going to see him. And we're going to have a beautiful, wonderful eternity with him, singing his praises, wearing crowns of righteousness forever, enjoying God the Father, enjoying God the Son, and enjoying God the Spirit, singing songs to him forever. That's the good news. That's the wonderful good news that we believe here. And not only, not only are we saved by believing that, but we're also sanctified by believing that. You don't just hear the gospel and believe it and then go, okay, sweet, I'm a Christian now, I'm going to move on to other things. We need to hear the gospel over and over and over again. The gospel is what energizes energizes us to grow in our faith. The gospel is what energizes us to become more and more like Jesus, reflecting God's glory in life. And so we obey Jesus more and more because of the good news. Not just because it's our duty, not because we feel like we have to earn our place or to keep our place. We respond to Jesus in obedience because it brings us great joy to do so, to obey God the Father who laid down everything for us by sending his Son to die for us. Can you see why Paul exercises the greatest amount of authority that he can muster to tell Timothy to preach the gospel we need to hear the gospel. There is so much weight of this. P- uh, Timothy must proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And Then he goes on in verse 2 to flesh out more of what that means. Timothy must be ready to do this in season and out of season, he says, meaning that there's going to come times where it's more convenient and far easier to preach the gospel than at other times. Regardless, Timothy is instructed still to be ready to bring the good news to bear upon every scenario, You and I would do well to have the gospel on repeat, to continue thinking about what God has done for you. Wake up in the morning with that on your mind, thinking through, what has God done for me? Who is God? What has he done for me? What does that say about me? That he loves me so much that he would lay down his life for me. And have that on repeat, so that when someone comes, and the time will come, when someone will say, hey, why do you go to church on Sunday morning?" Why do you do the things that you do? Why do you say the things that you say? Why don't you use that particular language? Why don't you do these things? And if we are well rehearsed in preaching the gospel to ourselves, we're going to know how to preach the good news in that moment. We're going to know why that good news is actually good news. He goes on by by giving three more imperatives which uh, provide more helpful direction and colour to herald in the gospel. Firstly, it's part of Timothy's task as he preaches the gospel to reprove which means he, he needs to show people where they're wrong. He needs to show people where they're wrong in disbelieving the gospel. He, secondly, he must rebuke, which means he needs to tell people to stop in the errors that they are committing. And, and just as a side note, no pastor should ever find himself enjoying or relishing doing those two things. A pastor who reproves and a pastor who rebukes carries hefty burdens and the scars of doing so. Which is why, thirdly, he must also exhort. He needs to encourage God's people with the gospel. He needs to celebrate when they are taking steps to making Jesus more and more important in their life. Finally, Timothy needs to do all of these things with complete patience and teaching. He has to be wise in this, wise in his patience. Patient with corrections, patient with rebukes. These things take time. People have feelings. People can get hurt if, if Timothy's not careful here. Timothy needs to be like a surgeon in the way that he brings the gospel about to bear on someone's life. A lie, he needs to show people that a life with Jesus is better than a life without him. He needs to be patient. He also needs to do with this with teaching. Timothy's job here is not to bring uh, what he thinks not to bring his opinion to the, to, to, the, to the church. He needs to bring God's word to the teaching. He must do this with teaching. So <clears throat> why must Timothy do these things? Well, Paul explains in the next few verses. He says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. The reason why Timothy must proclaim the Gospel is because people would rather hear what they want to hear rather than what they, what they need to hear. People would rather have their ears tickled by teaching that they want to hear rather than listening to the truth. Now I find this verse here fascinating because I thought this, this whole modern phenomena of echo chambers where we only listen to people who we want to hear, I thought this was a modern phenomenon, but here we go. Here's Paul talking about this as a, as a thing that happened 2,000 years ago. It's The problem of the heart. That we so eagerly just want to... We just want to listen to teaching that will make us feel good, make us just, just encourage us in what we already believe. We don't want to be rebuked. We, want, we don't want the reproving word of God to, to have its way in our lives. And, and this isn't just for Paul. We can go back further. Go back to the prophet Jeremiah. In, in chapter 5, verse 31, God says, The prophet's prophesy falsely, and the priests rule at their direction, my people love to have it so. He's saying, my people love it when the prophets just make things up and then the, then the priests just go along with it. They love it because their ears are being tickled. Or as it was revealed to Ezekiel, the people will come, Ezekiel, and they're going to listen to what you have to say. But not because they want to actually obey God. They just like the way that he talks. You can read this in, in chapter 33. They just like the way that Ezekiel talks. They want to tick that box. They want to say, yeah, I went and listened to the prophet today. That was really, really good. I'm not going to apply any of that. I just liked hearing it. I, liked, I like you to think that I actually went and listened to Ezekiel teach. And Paul is echoing a really similar sentiment to that, cautioning Timothy that if people persist in this, they will turn away. They will reject the truth of God and will wander off into things that are just blatantly untrue. This is the reason for the rebuking, for the reproving, for the exhorting of the gospel. In fact, those things function as a bit of a litmus test for us. If you're hearing the gospel and it's not challenging and not critiquing the way that you live your life, If you hear the gospel, if you hear the good news of Jesus Christ and you say, oh, that's nice, that's good, then yes, you might be hearing the gospel, but you might not actually be listening to it. The message of Jesus challenges us at every single turn because the message of Jesus is you should not be at the centre of the universe God should be at the center of the universe. And every time we put ourselves at the center of the universe, we crush and we hurt ourselves, and we crush and we hurt those around you. We crush and we hurt those around us. We should not be at the center of the universe. God should be at the center of the universe. You and I, we make horrible gods. We do a terrible job of being God. We only hurt the people around us. And we hurt the people around us by thinking, well, if I'm in the center of the universe, then everybody else around me should be convinced of that. And now I just can't understand why they aren't getting with the program. We do a horrible job of being God. And the gospel comes and says, you aren't God. Jesus is God. And he is better, at you than, sorry, better than you at everything. Jesus is God. He should be at the center of the universe. And since everything he does is for your good, including, and especially the fact that he laid down his life for you, you should obey him. You should let him be the king of your life. You should do what he says. And the great wonder is that you'll actually find yourself enjoying him all the more as you listen to him. So when Jesus has something to say about our lack of generosity, don't just say, oh, that's nice. Or, I know someone who should hear this. When we hear the gospel critiquing our lack of generosity. We should open our arms wide and let that wave hit us and knock us over and receive the full brunt of it and and respond by becoming more and more like Jesus in every way possible. And that goes not only for our lack of generosity, it also goes for our addiction to gossip, It goes to our insatiable greed, our unquenchable gluttony, our private drunkenness, our secret prejudice, our horrid pride, our hidden lust, and our utter laziness, and about 10,000 other things, and then the rest. If the gospel isn't critiquing us in these areas, then you might be hearing the gospel, but you're not listening to it. We need to let Jesus reprove and rebuke us. And then as we do that, we'll also find that in Jesus, his overwhelming love for us, he's not given up on us. He, Jesus has not given up on you and I. Isn't that wonderful news? He's patient with us. He, hasn't, he doesn't regret saving you. He is so glad that you're part of his people. He is so glad that you're in his kingdom. He's so glad that one day he gets to put that crown on your head. He is unbelievably patient with us. One of my favourite stories uh, from the Gospels and I might even say this is maybe the favourite story um, is from John 21 and I, I encourage you to go and read John 21 this afternoon and just pay attention to all the small little details because they're just great. It's just after the resurrection and the, the Peter and the apostles, John's there and a few others <clears throat> and they're out fishing and Jesus comes to the edge of the water and calls out to them, have you, have you caught anything? And they say no. And he said, why don't you put the, the net on the other side? And like, I'm no fisherman, but I know that doesn't make sense. And yet, he, they, so they do that, and, and there's so many fish that they can't actually, they can't actually drag the net, the net into, the, into the boat. So they've got to drag it to shore. And, and John says, that's the Lord. And Peter gets his coat, and he wraps it around his waist and jumps in and swims over to Jesus. And he finds Jesus is there on the beach and he's got a fire going and he's making breakfast for these guys some bread on the fire, fish. And it's this really wonderful moment where, where Jesus says, Hey, Pete, go get some of that fish. And so Pete goes and he gets the fish and he brings it back. And can you just imagine Jesus cooking? Like, I, I, that's, that thought is still sinking into my heart this week. Like, Jesus cooking. Like there's a lot of questions I've got about that, but just Jesus cooking over a fire on the beach with, with fish that had been caught 10 minutes earlier, if that. And here's Jesus making, making fish for his disciples for, for breakfast. Now here's what's really remarkable about that. This is just a few days after the crucifixion. This is not long after that at all. And, and Peter, the one that Jesus is making food for, Peter is the one who denied Jesus that night three times before the rooster crowed. I think we could all understand that for Peter, probably being anywhere near Jesus, the, the guilt and shame that would well up for that. But it's non existent here in, in the face of a Savior who's making him breakfast. Jesus is unbelievably, pa- easy, infinitely patient with us. And you might feel separated from Jesus right now because of the sin that's in your heart, the sin that's dwelling in the stuff that you can't let go of, the the stuff that you just can't seem to shake, the, the sin that you just can't seem to run away from or rid yourself of, and you're ashamed, and you think that right now God has a scowl on his face, and maybe he's thinking something in his mind like, you shouldn't be here. Maybe everybody else in this church, they have a right to be sitting here, but you've gone too far. You've stuffed up too badly. You shouldn't be here. Friends, the gospel it tells us the opposite. The gospel tells us, no, Jesus saves sinners like you and I and is infinitely patient with us. Timothy needs to heed Paul's instructions about the proclamation of the gospel to a hostile world. Timothy, you need to be sober-minded. You need to keep your head You need to endure suffering. It's coming. It won't stop and it won't wait for you. You need to endure it. Timothy, you need to do the work of an evangelist. Be a herald of good news. Keep proclaiming it. Timothy, you need to fulfill your ministry. Do all the duties that are required of a minister in such a way that it honors the one who called you. And and that's really kind of the final instructions that Paul gives to Timothy. That's it. It's not the last thing that Paul has to say. He's going to talk about a bit more that we'll look at next week. But he goes on just now by upholding himself again as an example to Timothy that Timothy should follow. And this is what he did in the passage that we looked at last week where he held himself as an example. But here, Paul really kind of opens the curtains of his own life for Timothy and reveals to Timothy what is actually going on. He says from verse 6, You can almost hear Paul slow down at this point as he reflects upon three important things. He firstly reflects on his present situation. Then he reflects on his past. And then he reflects on his future. And everything that he just said to Timothy here uh, is connected. Everything he just said to Timothy a second ago is connected to what he says now by that little word for at the beginning of verse 6. For. He's saying these things are connected, Timothy. And he's holding himself as a bit of an example here for Timothy to follow. Do you remember those, those old ads? Um, and they might exist now. I just don't really watch network television anymore. But those old ads, and they're often in the middle of the day, and they're advertising exercise equipment. And they have someone there with a six-pack on. They're like, you too could look like this with the ab pro, whatever it is. These ads might exist now. I remember my dad used to say, you know, ironically, he used to point to himself and he would say to me, "You too could look like this with neglect." Um, And so, like, so Paul's not being humorous here; he's actually saying something really similar. Timothy, if you followed my advice, you too could end up in prison, because this is where Paul's writing this from. He he gives Timothy this very important charge of how he should be a pastor, and then he says, "For." I am already being poured out as a drink offering. He connects this to what he's saying. He's connecting these things and saying, Timothy, if you, can, if you do what I say, this might be you. So he's not holding back the punches. He's not holding his punches here. He's giving Timothy a full dose of the reality of what following Jesus looks like. So reflecting on his present, he says in verse 6, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. It's, it's the reason of this verse that we think that Paul's life is really, really soon, just maybe weeks or months around the corner. To describe his imminent death, he uses a very vivid image of a drink offering being poured out, red wine being poured out over an altar and, and trickling down its sides. Now, Paul has elsewhere in the book of Philippians used imagery like this to describe his, uh, his future death, and he's borrowing this imagery from the Jewish sacrificial system, where, uh, which, which included pouring a drink offering over the altar during the ritual sacrifice of a lamb. So it was required during that sacrifice that a fourth of a hin of wine was to be poured out over the altar, and a fourth of a hymn is the equivalent, equivalent of two bottles of wine. And that's a fair amount of wine that he's using to describe his death. It's a really vivid imagery and really quite a beautiful way of picturing his death. This wine could have otherwise been used to drink and, and thus utilized for enjoyment and joy. But it would be poured out as a sacrifice to God and then would trickle away, almost seeming like a bit of a waste. And in the same way, Paul's life was dedicated to Jesus as a sacrifice to him. Instead of pursuing his own goals, his own ends, his own things that he, that he could have done in his life, he could have stayed in Tarsus, he could have stayed in Jerusalem, he could have lived a good, good life, he could have lived an unpersecuted life, he could have lived life in such a way that he didn't end up in a Roman prison. But he doesn't. He, he's dedicated his life as a sacrifice to the Lord. Strangely enough, Paul's life was not devoid of joy. In fact, the last time that Paul uses this language in Philippians, he also then was writing from prison. And as there in Philippians, if you've ever read Philippians, which I hope you should sometime, you'll find Philippians to be just the most wonderful, joy-filled book. He's writing from prison and he says, Rejoice in the Lord again, I say rejoice. Paul had found the secret to contentedness in Jesus Christ. Also, in the same way that in, in that ritual offering, the 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 drink offering poured out, that altar would have been used multiple times. And multiple offerings would have been poured out upon it. And that wine would would, would pour over and drip down and, and trickle away. And in the same way, Paul is kind of telling us, yes, he's been poured out, but but the altar stays. The altar remains. Someone once said to me, our life is we're like actors on a play. We step onto the stage from one side, we play our part, and then we step off the other side. But the main character, Jesus Christ, he stays on the stage the entire time. This is what we kind of get from what Paul is saying here. He's saying, my life has been poured out, and there are going to be others who will pour out their life, and there have been tens, hundreds of thousands, millions of people who have dedicated their life to Jesus, being poured out, not pursuing their own game, not pursuing their own ends, not pursuing the good life now, but having the future in mind. This is Paul's life. This is how he played his part. And the last few drops are now being poured out. So he's reflecting on his present, now he turns to his past and he says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. In the face of many people who have opposed him, he fought the good fight. It's been tough, it's been a wrestle, but he's fought it well. It's left him not without scars. He's got the the marks to to prove his, his fight. He says he's run the race. Long endurance for this race has been a necessity to him. The writer of Hebrews talks about running with endurance on the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. This this tells us something pretty important. Firstly, each one of us has a different race to run. I am not called to run your race and you are not called to run mine. Secondly, the race, though it must be endured, promises joy. The race that was set before Jesus was called joy, even though it included the cross. Why? Because obedience to the Father's will is the pathway to our joy. It's interesting as well that he doesn't say that I've won the fight. He doesn't say that I've won the race. He just says I finished it and I fought it. I fought hard. I've run with endurance. We'll find out in just a few moments in the next verse why he talks like that. He also says that he's kept the faith. He's still walking with Jesus. He hasn't abandoned that which God has given him. He says, I've remained by Jesus' side. And this propels him finally to talk about his future in spectacularly glowing terms. He says, henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing." Henceforth is a wonderful way to phrase this. It's like he's saying, there's now only one thing left to do. Claim the crown. Claim the crown that awaits me. Using the same language that he employed in verse 1 about Jesus being the judge, he now looks forward with great anticipation to that wonderful thing that is going to take place on that day of judgment. That on that day, those who believe in Jesus Christ will be awarded with a crown of righteousness. Now that's unbelievable. But like not only will we rece- not only do we receive imputed righteousness, that is the righteousness that is credited to our account, we'll we also be given the crown of righteousness, a crown that says, "Hey, you now rule over these things. You now rule and reign with Jesus Christ." And by receiving a crown of righteousness, we are receiving something that we did not earn ourselves. We're receiving something that we got from God as, a, as the gracious gift of life. And he restores us to what we were created to be and to do and to have, to be his image bearers, to rule over creation in glory. We will wear those crowns for eternity and we will sing forever songs about Jesus Christ, enjoying God forever. And not only that, but that crown, we're going to receive the crown, it's going to be placed on our heads by Jesus Christ himself. Like, it's not like the Tokyo Olympics. You know the Tokyo Olympics where they were handed the, handed the medals and then the athletes had to put them over themselves? This crown is going to be placed on our heads by Jesus Christ himself. Isn't that wonderful? Like, we're going to be that close to him, that kind of face to face, and he's going to see us. We're going to see him. But pay special attention to the way that he describes Jesus. It's in the same way as verse 1. He says, Jesus, the righteous judge. Now, I don't know about you, but I read that and I get a little bit uncomfortable because I don't like the, we don't like the idea of Jesus being a judge. It makes us uncomfortable. But here he's saying, he's saying this with an important joy. It's a reminder that when Jesus comes again, he will come in judgment to judge the living and the dead. And his coming will be the great leveler and will terrify all those who have opposed him. Revelation 6 tells us, tells us that, we, that those people who oppose Jesus will try and hide themselves among the rocks and among the caves and they will actually call out to the rocks and call out to the mountains, please come and fall on us so that so you can bury us and hide us from the face of him who was seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb of God. Jesus' appearing in his second coming is going to be terrifying for every single person who has opposed him and it's going to be wonderful for every single person who is in him. This is why Paul says those who have loved his appearing, those who have put their faith in him, because they know that the judge has come to them and been judged on their behalf. He has taken their sin from them. He has stood in their place. He has received God's wrath upon his own body for their sin. No guilt in life. No fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. That's the words that we sang this morning. We don't have guilt in life now because of what Jesus has done for us. So those who put their trust in Jesus Christ, they can pray, we can pray prayers like, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Why? Because the face of Jesus Christ won't be a terror to them. The face of Jesus Christ will be a face that, that looks at us with joy and delight in the fact that he has called us to his side for eternity. That crown is awarded to those who trust in Jesus and that is the good news of the gospel that we should keep looking forward to on that particular day, on that day when Jesus returns. And friends, we've got to keep our eyes, like Paul, we've got to keep our eyes on that future day, knowing well and truly that when Jesus comes, he's going to set everything right. No no doubt, we... We are living in strange times, right? We are living in difficult times and my guess is that things are only going to get a lot worse. My guess is that things are going to get harder. I'm not putting my hope and my faith in things suddenly getting all of a sudden better. That would be nice. My hope, though, is actually in, in a saviour who's going to award us with a crown of righteousness. My, my, my hope is in a saviour who is good for us, who is the king over all things, the prince of peace. The government shall be on his shoulders, Isaiah says in chapter 9. The one who is above all things, holy and righteous, mighty above all things, will reward us, those who are in him, with his crown of righteousness. Each one of us needs to think about that crown and that the one who will one day place it on our heads be the help and protection that we need to face today.
0: Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature and multiply disciples in communities that depend upon, declare and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others